This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. Welcome to UCSD Guestbook. I'm Professor Benetta Jules-Rosette from the Department of Sociology and the African and African American Studies Research Project. And we're welcoming here today Dominic Kanza, musician and composer, whose work on world beat and Congolese music is outstanding. Dominique has been visiting us for the past two weeks as a Regents lecturer, and he's given a number of lectures on the history of African and African-American musical forms. Dominique, can you tell us a little bit about your musical journey from Africa through Europe to the United States? Uh, yes, certainly. Well, first I would like to thank you for having me here at UCSD. I would also like to thank the um, Afri African and African-American Research Project for bringing me here as a Regents lecturer. Um, I began to play guitar when I was approximately uh, 11 and a half. Um, I, I grew up in London and um, I was um, exposed to the Woodstock Festival and that's where I first saw a fellow by the name of Carlos Santana <laughs> and his expression on his instrument just uh, uh, made such a big impact on me that I just wanted to 
experience what he was experiencing. You saw Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock, too. I, I saw Jimi Hendrix, but surprisingly enough, he did not have the same impact that Carlos Santana had on right. me. So uh, I would credit Carlos Santana as, as turning my life around and um, uh, causing me to become a professional musician. You told me an interesting story the other day about how you made your first guitar. Maybe mm -hmm. you can share that with us. Sure. Uh, my family is a very, uh, uh, to use the right word, I would say maybe upper class or conservative conservative or uh, political family and I was not sure how, how they would react to my new vocation because <laughs> up to the point where I saw Carla Santana I had already decided that I wanted to be a fighter jet pilot <laughs> and that was already hard on, on them <laughs> on my parents <laughs> so That's this funny. new change would would I didn't know how they would react to it so uh, I, I, I decided to build my own guitar and teach myself how to play. And I grabbed a, a metal bowl, hollow bowl, and nailed a, a, a palm tree branch on it and took off the, uh, string, the, the brake strings off my bike and <laughs> improvised these two strings. It was a two-string <laughs> guitar. And I taught myself how to play. And I taught myself how to play the Zaria National Anthem, and I auditioned. I, I told my mom, you know, this is, I want to play something for you, and I played it to her. She was so impressed, the very same day she went out and bought me a real guitar. That's a great story. Because, <laughs> yes. you know, for people who've traveled in Africa or the Caribbean or even in Mexico, they've seen little kids making uh, cars out of wire and mm -hmm. guitars and instruments, so it's a great story to hear that your first guitar was made like that. You know that here in the United States, in the south of the United States, there's really an instrument uh, which is made like that. It's one string which sometimes people put up uh, in front of their houses or um, they actually string it on a, on a box or a bowl like you did. And it's called the Diddley Bow, mm -hmm. from which uh, a musician that everyone knows, Bo Diddley, took his name. And he has a kind of a square guitar that looks like a box. But in fact, the instrument that you made probably has its origins in Africa and came to the South and is a real, real instrument. Often they put a, um, you know, a little uh, sort of um, some kind of um, jar or something inside mm -hmm. and then they run it up and down and they play yeah. the one string against the post of a, yeah. a house. Yes, yes. I, I actually, I was quite surprised. I did not know that uh, Bo Diddley took his name from that instrument because that's I right. thought that was his real name. No, that's, <laughs> that's where it comes from. Mm. I don't know what his real name is. Okay. But in any case, uh, so can you tell us a little bit, you've been lecturing about the musical history of the Congo and also what you've called, and I really like the title that you're using, a musical journey mm -hmm. from Africa to the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea behind a musical journey? Yes, um, the idea, the, the idea of, of the research that I started to do was, was uh, in, in back in Zaire, I was hired by um, uh, a performer who plays traditional Zairean music. Um, he's actually what they call a, a nganga, nganga kisi, which roughly translates to, um, to a healer. Um, um, not witch doctor, but 
something in between. And his performances were, he had the traditional clothes and everything. He, he was bare-chested with uh, a skirt made out of... Um, uh, uh, Raffia. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and he had the idea of, of, of blending traditional rhythms with modern sounds. Mm -hmm. So he was he was in search of of somebody who was uh, flu fluid in both um, styles, and he hired myself and my brother in his band. And when I was playing with him, I was I was um, intrigued by by the uh, the f familiarity of of the sounds that I was hearing him play. Mm -hmm. He was playing an instrument called a likembe, which is uh, I think in American terms they call it marimba. Mm -hmm. Finger piano. Yes, something yeah. like that. So that uh, really intrigued me, and I wanted to to um, expand further on that and and research it a little bit. And then I also, when I started to travel around the world, I would also play with um, uh, bands uh, from South Africa and other parts of the world. And I kept hearing familiar sounds because I I started out as a uh, pop rock, uh, jazz musician, and that was my specialty at the time. But when I started to get into these traditional African rhythms, I would see a striking similarity with, with all the other Western so-called, you know, quote-unquote, modern rhythms that I was playing. So right. that's, that's where the idea originated from. So basically what you do in that talk, some people may have attended the lecture earlier uh, is to really trace the roots of African and African-American music from basically the Congo area, mm -hmm. showing how it moves to South Africa, also showing how it moves to the United States. And maybe later on you can give us a few examples from that with the guitar. Mm -hmm. So that's been for you many years of research. So people should know that uh, it's not just your musical playing, but that you've really done a lot of reading and you're mm -hmm. about ready, I think, really to publish a paper on this as yes. well. Yes. So yes. it's a whole research project that you've been doing, which we hope your time as a Regents lecturer is that you uh, continue to further that. Mm -hmm. What about a little bit the musical history of the Congo? The Congo, many people probably know, some may not, has been a real rich source of popular music. Mm -hmm. uh, basically the music known as rumba, mm -hmm. and which has now come to be known worldwide and evolved into sukus. Mm -hmm. And after reggae, probably rumba is the best known um, international type of African diaspora music often fits in under the category of world beat. Can you mm -hmm. tell us, just describe rumba. What is rumba? Rumba is a, a term that comes from, from Cuba. Um, uh, you have to understand that the Congo was a Belgian colony, and, and the Congolese people were exposed to um, European rhythms, uh, but they could not assimilate them, they could not associate with them because it, was, it sounded very foreign to them. And with the, the, uh, the, the trade with Angola, which was a Cuban, uh, which was Cuban influence, with the Cubans coming into Congo, and Congolese being exposed to Cuban music, which was rumba, immediately they recognized it as being their own, their own rhythm, and they adopted it immediately. And a little note about rumba is when, when it, in its early stages in, in Cuba, 
it was nicknamed um, Dirty Dancing. And when you look back further into the history of the Congo Kingdom, there was an, an uh, initiation ritual which was called Lumba, L-U-M-B-A, which mm. is you just change the L to R, it's Roomba, mm -hmm. and that initiation was, uh, uh, in, it was initiating s uh, teenagers to reach sexual matur maturity. So you, you can immediately make the connection right there. Yeah, I'm told I was talking with some of the scholars who were at our recent workshop who said that that word goes all over the East African coast and even into Madagascar, the mm -hmm. word Lumba. Yeah. Yes. which means just what you said, right, kind yeah. of an initiation <laughs> process. Mm -hmm. And so it became rumba. Maybe you could show us on the guitar like, what the Cuban rhythms were and what, the, what happened with the, uh, the African rhythms in rumba. Sure. Uh, when the uh, first Cuban rhythms arrived in Congo, it would sound something like this. One, two, three, four. So the Congolese adopted it and, and started to play it, but they made some minor adjustments, uh, some minor corrections, which the Cubans had not assimilated fully. And this would be the, the way the Congolese would play it. One, two, three, four. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, if you know the languages of that area, you can see those accents really mm -hmm. accent almost like the language does, and it resembles a little bit talking drums. So those extra beats that they put in over the Cuban music, which was itself came from Africa, came mm -hmm. from the Yoruba and West Africa, then went back mm -hmm. and became sort of re-Africanized as the Congolese rumba, and those accents are a lot like the accents in talk. Oh, yes, absolutely. Are there secret messages that people are <laughs> communicating when they play this music? Uh, sort of like talking drums? or Yes, there are secret messages, but I don't think I'm authorized to divulge them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the musical influences on you? Because you said you were play played jazz and pop and... Uh, and then you were apprenticed to this Nganga doctor and played music with him uh, and had a very, very interesting career. You also then met Paul Simon and some others uh, about the time that the Graceland album was made. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, how Paul Simon influenced you? Uh, yes, I, uh, I met Paul Simon in, in um, 1989 in New York. Um, through, um, I was on tour with um, a singer called Papa Wemba, who is one of the most popular uh, Zairean singers right now. And Paul Simon came to one of our performances and was impressed with my playing and asked me to work with him on a project that he was doing um, called Rhythm of the Saints. And later I stayed and I've been working with him since. We've done a lot of projects together. 
and I, I was really positively impressed with, with his workmanship, his professionalism, and, and the way he treats people. And so, did you just sort of end up staying in New York because of Paul Simon? You didn't really plan to stay. You were on tour, and then you just ended up staying. That's that how that's it correct. I had not planned on staying. He asked me to stay. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And what about David Byrne and some of the other pioneers in world music? Have you worked with any of them? I have not worked with uh, Peter Gabriel. No, I have not worked with David Byrne or Peter Gabriel. I have I have been in the studio um, when. David Byrne was working on his latest project. I was in the studio with him, just giving some guidance, uh, direction. Now, you know, Paul Simon, um, and you've really portrayed him, and I think you're, you're very right, you know him as a, as a very fair and interesting person. But there is a lot of debate about the 1986 Graceland album, which was made uh, during the apartheid ban in South Africa. So it's politically controversial in terms of its production. The mm -hmm. music we all know is just wonderful, but there are a lot of uh, factors about uh, whether the musicians were actually paid studio rates and also the very fact that uh, at that time, now right after that album, the uh, cultural boycott in, in South Africa was stopped mm -hmm. and the musicians and artists themselves requested that it cease. But up to then, the boycott in the arts was pretty much like the boycott in sports. Mm -hmm. And most major American musicians, ranging from Harry Belafonte to Frank Sinatra, were boycotting South Africa. And Paul Simon broke that boycott and mm -hmm. claimed that uh, it didn't really matter because art was more important. What do you think about this whole controversy as an African artist? Well, my personal view on the whole matter is is that uh, Paul Simon was right to do what he did because he um, he managed to to show a better side of of South Africa, you know, uh, the South African culture, uh, which was was not being promoted by the apartheid system, and he he helped um, bring. Um, African culture to a, a, a much wider audience by by uh, recording this album. Um, the other night, uh, one of our com uh, common friends, Sally, was was saying that that was such a culture shock to hear Graceland for the first time. They would hear um, African rhythms, and it was just so beautiful. So I guess if Paul Simon had not done that, if he had if he had not had the cu the courage to do that probably would be would be in a pos in a position today where I would even be here lecturing yeah, on African you, rhythms that's very so true. I, that, that's my personal view on on it yeah so he has really opened up yes. uh, a sort of a, a pathway mm -hmm. but what about now you are here and you are the ambassador for the rhythms from your own country and your own region. Mm -hmm. What are your future plans? Where do you see going with this kind of music? And what different kinds of music do you see in your future? Um, my future plans are pretty ambitious. Um, I would like to, to go um, a step further than, than um, uh, people like Bob Marley have gone, uh, which would be to, to bring this music to a, a much larger audience and to actually um, familiarize people with the music because uh, uh, American music has had such an impact on, 
cultures all over the world, but most, not many people know that um, this um, American music originated from um, African music. So I would like to bridge that, you know, gap and try to uh, reach as many people as possible through my, I've just put out a recording that I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, here it is, your uh, recording called Congo. That's right, yes. Hold that up so people can right see here. it toward the camera. Uh, Which yeah. camera are we using? This uh, one? <laughs> yes, it's called Congo. It's not being distributed yet because that the, this is a personal reason. I would, um, I, w I will distribute it this summer, but I wanted to, to be able to, to perform before distributing it so people can see the strength of the performance and then later when the demand is high enough then I will go into distribution. But several very lucky people here at UCSD have the album already. Right, they've yes. been able to buy it after your lectures or they've either uh, obtained it and some mm -hmm. people actually had it before you even arrived and were talking about it. Well, that album is very interesting because it contains some examples of what's called sukus. Can you kind of define for the audience what, what is sukus music? Sukus music is, um, sukus is a French slang, a French slang word derived from, from the French word secoué, uh, which means to shake. And um, that's what people would do when they would hear this music. Um, it originated from from uh, the early uh, bands in, in Zaire were playing Congolese rumba, which was more We've laid. Already heard. Yes, yes, which is more laid back and right. you know designed for listening rather right. than dancing. And with the later generation, the younger generation of bands such as Zaiko, they divided the structure into two parts, which would be the first part would be a rumba listening part. And the second part would be a faster dancing uh, section. And that's called a seben. Yes, and seben is interesting because is an interesting word because Zaiko used to play a lot in East Africa, like Tanzania, Kenya, mm -hmm. in those areas. And when they would play, people would keep yelling, "We want the seben! We want the seben!" And they would not understand what it meant. And later they were told that it meant the seventh the seventh degree of the scale, which <laughs> people did not know, you yeah. know, they didn't know how to speak. Uh, yeah, so they called it seven. Seven, and so, and that's when they recognized those high notes, they just they said, decided that's the seventh note, <laughs> and that's what we want to hear, so we can dance to it. Can you show people how that transition is done into the seven? Sure. I will play one of my songs, which is Congo. This is the rumba part. It goes one, two, three, four. As you can tell, this is more laid back. It's, right. it's more listening. It's more for listening. And 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 the sort of like soft jazz kind of. Yeah, and and the seven part would come in with.
would be. That's great. <laughs> that really makes you feel like you want to dance. That's right. That's, it's, that's the, uh, the purpose of that particular part. Now, speaking of that, can you tell us maybe what, what is one of the most unusual or humorous things that's ever happened to you on a concert tour when you've been playing this dance music? Do strange things happen? You know, we watch on television rock concerts and so on. Have you mm -hmm. ever had an unusual experience or a humorous one? Uh, yes. Uh, what comes to mind is, uh, is a, a show that I did at a festival in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, the crowd Oh, uh, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> coincidentally. Uh, the crowd was extremely large. Uh, it was not a very large area, but there was uh, in excess of 10,000 people. Wow. And, and they had barricades before in front of the stage, and people were pushing each other. And actually, the crowd got so unruly that they started to body surf. So uh, I was right in the middle of a, of, of a solo. Did I you continue playing while people were body surfing? Yes, we, we continued to play. And, and in the middle of a solo, I look over my, my shoulder and I see the, the fire marshal and, and the, the police officer. And right after that particular song, the, the, uh, the police chief comes up to me and says, if you don't stop the show right now, everybody's going to go to jail. <laughs> so that was kind of like a humorous experience. Wow, you really, that would, sounds like a wild time. Wild is mildly put. Wow. Yes. So are you, does that make you feel good when you see the audience really get into your music in that way? Uh, because you also, I mean, you have two sides. You have the side of being a scholar and researcher. But uh, do you really enjoy performing as well? Yes, I enjoy performing very much. It's actually one of the reasons why I became a musician was because of, of the fact that I could see Carlos Santana was in a totally different world when he was performing. I could see that he, he became one with his instrument and he was just, um, uh, he was just cutting through with, with what he was doing. He was really spiritual and I, and I saw the effect that he had on the audience and I wanted to be part of that spiritual experience. And so it really gives me great pleasure when I see people react positively to to my music and I have to mention that I always have positive messages in my music. Well that brings me to another topic that I, I don't want to leave out of our interview talking about positive messages mm -hmm. versus other kinds. Uh, there's a whole history in Congolese music of its having been used for political purposes. So after for example independence under uh, former uh, now deceased President uh, Mobutu Sese Seko, uh, the music was used for political rallies and political television shows. And um, can you tell us a lot, a little bit about that? That that use was called in French animation or animation mm -hmm. politics. Mm -hmm. um, and the music, of course, didn't change in its popular appeal, but it was marshaled to a political end. Is there anything you could say about that? That was I know that that was earlier and before your time of playing, but um, you know a little yes. bit about animation politique? Yes, I do. Um, uh, Mobutu, who was the uh, ruler at the time of Zaire, had um, this vision or idea of uh, returning to traditional values of the Congo Kingdom. Uh, in the Congo Kingdom, they used to have um, musicians who were designed to, to, to praise 
the court, the, the king's court, and uh, all day long they would just beat the drums and, and, and sing the king's, the king's praises. And Mobutu had that same idea, but he took it a, a step further. He, um, he created um, what were called, as you said, animation groups, mm -hmm. and later expanded them to, to include schools. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I, was, I would always show up late at school, because of all <laughs> these ceremonies that you have to perform before going into class. Uh, uh, it was very politicized, yes. And so the music, what kind of music was used there? And how did, I mean, it wasn't really sukus, it was sort no. of, uh, was it hymns or what, what sort of music? No, it was traditional rhythms. And traditional it was very rhythms. interesting. Um, politically, it was, it was a little exaggerated on his behalf, but culturally it was extremely interesting because he had different animation groups from different uh, regions of the country. And uh, most of the regions, you know, were derived directly or from subdivisions of the Congo Kingdom. But some of the eastern and southern regions had a totally different culture uh, and kingdom, like the Bakuba, the Luba, right, right. and further up north with the um, um, people from Kivu and all that. Mm -hmm. So he would have different animation groups for different regions of, of the country, and right. that was really a very good culture of promotion, except for the, the message that they were singing, which yeah, was like, always Mobutu is the great god. And That's my understanding that uh, this strategy that he used actually was picked up by other African countries, Gabon. Yes. Togo, Togo. Uh, Gabon, Togo, uh, Ivory Coast. It, it really spread, spread around the country, uh, around the, the, uh, the continent, because people started to see um, that it was an extremely effective cultural promotion right. for their country. In fact, if you go even today to West Africa and you turn on a television set in, in Abidjan, mm -hmm. Ivory Coast, you'll see hours of these animations, yes, yes. dances, you <laughs> know, yeah, yeah. go on and on. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Uh, I guess they fill a TV time that's not filled by American imports mm -hmm. on television. That's right. Now, um, Maybe we can return a little bit to some aspects of the musical journey. One of the things that you talked about that's really interesting, it'll come up in your lecture, was that you showed that there were two parts of the slave trade. And you showed the part that came from the Congo-Angola region mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how that influenced music. Mm -hmm. And then you showed the part that came from West Africa mm -hmm. at a later date, Ghana mm -hmm. and Nigeria, Yoruba. Mm -hmm. um, and how that influenced music. And uh, perhaps you can give us a few examples. You had a really fascinating one about the Yoruba music and its relationship to James Brown. Right, Maybe yes. you could uh, give us a quick demonstration <laughs> of that and talk about that a bit. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, the early slaves were, were mostly from the, uh, the central part of Africa, which was the Congo Kingdom, essentially, because it was the most vast kingdom at the time in that particular part. But later, when um, Americans um, realized that most of the slaves were coming from the same area, um, and um, because of the common culture, there would be conspiracies and, and plots and in insurrections, and they decided that they, wanted, they didn't want the slaves from the same area anymore. They asked to diversify. So at that time, the slave... Um, 
for lack of a better word, the slave dealers <laughs> would, would expand into West Africa. And, and uh, roughly, without going into the details of the lecture, um, I would play um, a rhythm from a, a part of Africa that's, that's known today as Nigeria, from the Yoruba people. Uh, it would go something like this. One, two, three, four. Just to show, in comparative perspective, to show the similarity with 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 um, James Brown. I don't think he did it um, consciously, but he he came up with this rhythm, which is quite similar similar to what I was playing. It's. similarity Definitely. with the Yoruba rhythm. But you know what's interesting? I like bringing this not only into tradition but into the present. A lot uh -huh. of people don't know that starting really in the 1970s, there were a lot of festivals all over Africa. Festac is probably the best known in Lagos. Mm -hmm. uh, then Don King, the boxing promoter, yeah. promoted a big fight in Kinshasa between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Mm -hmm. And that fight had concerts around it. James Brown was at both of these events. He was yes. at Festac and he yeah. was at the big fight in Kinshasa. Mm -hmm. And these were moments where um, African-American musicians, soul, blues, and funk musicians were coming into direct contact with African musicians mm -hmm. who were playing sukus, rumba. Yeah. And so some of these exchanges were not just the traditional ones that you're talking about coming over with the slave trade, but were mm -hmm. reinvigorated in, in the contemporary period. Mm -hmm. So it's no accident, perhaps, that James Brown actually was in Nigeria and heard some of those rhythms at Festac, mm -hmm. heard some of those rhythms in, in Kinshasa mm -hmm. at Don King's festival. And so uh, more exchanges than we realize are taking place. That's true. That leads me to another question. How do you see yourself in, in those exchanges and making a bridge? Because basically now you've lived several years in the United States. Uh, you really um, are, seem to me very American in your, <laughs> in your way of presenting yourself, and yet you are attached to your place and home of origin. How do you see yourself as a bridge in this musical exchange? Well, I hope to make uh, a, a modest contribution to, to, uh, to uh, the, uh, the opening of, of minds and to the acceptance of, of of uh, certain realities, these are, to me, they they seem like realities that that do not need to be argued. There are hi historical facts. You know, there was slavery. P people came from Africa. We cannot deny it. They brought their culture with them, and and their culture influenced the rest of the world. 
I'm, I'm, I'm um, confining myself to the musical realm, but, but there's also language which was strongly influenced. Um, I would say like a word like okay, which is accepted as part of the English language right now. It's, it was not from the English, it was from the West African language, which was wake. Mm -hmm. So th these are little things that have um, um, uh, impacted, it, it has brought together a lot of cultures. And I hope by my multicultural upbringing, um, people will see through me, will see a, a much better, will have a much better view of, of, of the cultural um, similarities and, and bridges. That's good. That leads me to uh, bring in one last question, then maybe you could play a little bit for us. Mm -hmm. And that question would be, how do you see, what do you see as your musical goals? Where do you want to go from here? From UCSD, what's next? Okay. <laughs> My musical goals are, are, are very ambitious. I, I, um, right after UCSD, I have, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm recording a, a gospel album. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. But in terms of like the longer term goals, the longer not, term not just projects, okay. but you know, goals rather than projects. My goal is to bring um, uh, the music of, of the African continent to as many people as possible. Um, I strongly believe that this music is, is, is uh, very well accepted. Uh, I've seen through my performances how American audiences relate to it, and, and it's just very, very, they just like it very much, probably because they, they recognize some of their own rhythms in, in it. So I would very much like to bring it to as many people as possible and also to try to um, inform as many people as possible as to where where we've all been and where we're all going, because this is really a, a, a joint venture. You know, people create separation. It's, it's separation does not exist until people create it. Let me take that um, in a certain direction. That's an interesting statement that you made. Mm -hmm. Francois Mechiadi, who mm -hmm. known otherwise as Franco, was a big pop legend in rumba and sukus music, and. Um, Franco complained that he didn't feel that Zairean Congolese music was appreciated in the West. In fact, he died in 1989 in London, and on his deathbed he said, I never had a Western sponsor and my music isn't appreciated. And he was probably one of the biggest innovators. He founded the OK Jazz Ensemble and was central to Zairean music. Um, a lot of music historians argue that when you look at so-called world beat, what really gets the airtime is reggae and ragamuffin, and that uh, Sukus uh, never really did. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Franco's remark? Well, I have a very personal opinion on, on what Franco's remarks uh, meant. Um, he was absolutely right in what he was saying, but there was one thing that he, di he, di he didn't realize was the fact that he had tailored his music to suit African audiences. Ah, um, okay. Um, it's again the same. So he didn't provide a translation bridge, which no, is what he, you're there was to no do. bridge, and and it's the same example that I gave with the early Congolese, when they were exposed to European music, it was 
tailored for European ears, and they mm -hmm. could not as associate with it. And when they heard Cuban music, which had some of their own rhythms, then they immediately adopted it. And Frank Franco had, had made that, um, that well, I, I would say, mistake by tailoring his music for the African audience. And the, uh, the other cultures would like the music, but they would not... Um, they wouldn't understand they it. They would understand it. You yeah. know, it's like playing traditional music. You, you, it's, it's more of a cultural, uh, educated listening audience, like opera. You know, you can't really ask anybody to enjoy opera. You can't ask a teenager to enjoy opera because they would like it, but they won't recognize some of their own um, rhythms that they're used to in it. So that was the biggest mistake that Franco had made. Um, I, I have it been... It was too localized. Too localized. Yeah. I have been very fortunate to have a very diversified background. I started actually playing Western rhythms, and, and then I started to uh, study traditional African rhythms. So I, I saw... I can see the, what, what needs to be done in order to, to uh, make it a lot more acceptable. Well, now that we've kind of gone and covered a lot of topics, can you maybe uh, play uh, two or three selections for us that show how you're making that bridge? Sure. Maybe show the African side and then the Western side sure. and how you're, you know, one of the things I think you're doing is like translating a language almost. You're mm -hmm. providing a way for people to connect the kind of music, uh, popular music in Africa, to what they're used to uh, in the United States and in Britain, um, rock music, rock mm -hmm. and roll, and so on. And you even have combined rock and roll beats with some of your mm -hmm. music at mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. I know you're experimenting with that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, maybe you could show us how the bridge has been made and play a few selections as we uh, kind of draw this whole show together. Sure. Um, I will play a selection from, from my CD. It's called Broken Heart. And what I did was I, I, I uh, blended uh, traditional rhythms from, from an ethnic group in, in what is known today as the Zaire or Congo. Uh, it's a, a group called the Bayaka, mm -hmm. and the first half of the song has that rhythm, and I blended it with, with um, modern jazz chords. Mm -hmm. So this is how it goes. One, two, three, four. This is the uh, traditional part. Yeah. see the uh, the fusion there. Yeah. I'm gonna do one more chorus and into the bridge. 
So that's I really that's like that. That's really too. interesting. I didn't realize that that was a, a yaka rhythm. You know, I did research among the yaka. For oh, you did. Uh, yeah. So you must yeah. recognize that. I do now that you pointed <laughs> it out to me. I, when I heard the CD, it was <laughs> just combined. I didn't right. even think about it that way. Right. But uh, uh -huh. that's very interesting. Sure. And what are some of the other, you've done some other uh, types of combinations, even with reggae and other types of rhythms, mm -hmm. haven't you? Yeah, I w let me play um, uh, another selection, which is the title song of, of, of the CD. It's called Congo. And uh, it goes like this. One, two, three, four. In this particular song, I forgot to say, I, I had um, included a section which, which is more Caribbean. Um, uh, uh, it's called Zouk right now. Right, but coming from I, Martinique, Guadeloupe. Yes, yes. Uh, but I wanted to include some jazz chords in it mm -hmm. and, and just um, underline the importance of, 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 of the, um, the fusion. So it, one, two, three, four. Here's the section. That's a wonderful piece. And it makes, it's even more meaningful when you explain the origins of the different parts of it and what you're trying to do and really make, making these combinations mm -hmm. in the whole musical picture. Mm -hmm. Very, very exciting. How, how do you see this in terms of what some of the other um, the sort of African jazz musicians, Hugh Masakila, Mano Dibangu, they're also trying to do some of these things. You see yourself as, you know, walking in that tradition? Um, uh, yes and no. Uh, I would say I would say I highly respect their work, uh, Hugh Masakela and Manu Dibangu, respectively. 
Um, but the only problem that I see with it is sometimes they, they tend to, to depart too much from the tr traditional rhythms and go into jazz too much. Mm -hmm. And I, the, the difference with me is I consider the traditional picture, the tr traditional rhythm as being the, really the foundation of, of most of the type of music that are, that are including jazz and R&B and everything. So I, I put a lot more emphasis on the traditional side. I see. Well, we have uh, a bit of time left. Maybe you could just uh, play a couple more selections of what you think is really the audience would like to hear and what you like the best. Okay. Well, I would like to play uh, my favorite song on Paul Simon's Graceland album, which was called, uh, is called Diamonds on the Soles of Your Shoes. Starts like this. <laughs> Great. Thank you. You know, and most people, when they, they, they're kind of bowled over by the lyrics of that, which are very interesting, but don't, don't relate at all to that tune. And so you never, uh, at least if you're not a, a professional musician, you don't stop to listen to uh, that song. It comes from South African Bakwa, I believe, doesn't it? Bakanga. Bakanga. Mm -hmm. Yes. And t can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Uh, the, uh, the, the lyrics or the rhythm? Yeah, the rhythm. No, the lyrics we all know. Okay. <laughs> lyrics we know there are Paul Simons, but the, the rhythm that's behind there, it's, it's a very special type of South African township music. Yes, yes, absolutely. The rhythm that's, that's there is, is um, called Mbakanga uh, from South Africa, but a lot of people uh, don't know that the um, South African people actually migrate from the north, from the center, mostly Angola and Congo kingdoms. I had um, the opportunity to to befriend a um, professor of African history at, at um, uh, City College in New York, and he um, gave me the missing piece of information that I was looking for, which is that that these people had migrated south from uh, Angola and King Congo Kingdom. And um, um, what they did was they basically just slowed down the uh, the, the the uh, traditional Congo rhythm, and they slowed it down and and tied the first two notes together. Mm -hmm. The um, the uh, traditional Congo rhythm would have a, a rhythm which would go, which is 
if I had a musical chart, I could write it. But the mbakanga would basically tie the first two notes, which is dun 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 dun. They would make it a, a dotted eighth, with, and then it, it would become a dun 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 dun, and they'll come they'll come up with. So that's basically the um, the. Uh, and that's the music that we associate with South Africa here in this country mm -hmm. uh, as well. And if you think of a great singer such as Miriam Makiba, mm -hmm. they came out of that old township tradition, and you can hear that rhythm in what they're singing as well. Right. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground uh, today. Um, I would really like to counsel the audience to... Um, look out for your, not only your CDs, but your written work, which I'm sure will be not only in the form of articles, but eventually a musical journey will become maybe a book with a CD that uh, people can find in their local bookstore. Thank you very much. I really appreciate those words. So I would really, um, at this point, like to draw everything to a close. And I want to uh, thank you for joining us, Dominique Kanza, here at UCSD for the past two weeks. And I'd like to thank the audience for viewing. Thank you.